I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be reading from verses 7 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Please follow along with me. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we have access that we can open your word and we can see what you've recorded for us, for our nurture, for the calling that we received to believe for the maturing of the saints and for our being equipped for this gospel ministry, this message that we have to proclaim. Lord, we pray that you would work in us by means of your word uh, this morning, that your church would together be transformed by this one word. Thank you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would work in all of our households today. Amen. It's interesting, at the end of our previous passage, last week we looked at verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 ends sounding like we've got a plan, a church planting strategy. We make an open statement of the truth and God penetrates human hearts with his glory and we get to look pretty amazing as ministers of the gospel. It's going to be awesome. And Paul interrupts such vain folly with simple words. We have this treasure in jars of clay. A 
What we see in our passage this morning is fundamentally that God has determined to secure all glory for himself. Pastor Sam Storms puts it in exactly that way, that the fundamental reality of this this passage is God is determined to secure all glory for himself. And he says, I hope you're okay with that. For your ultimate joy is dependent on God being God. Were God to be less than supremely glorious and praiseworthy, we are the ones who stand to lose. Our ultimate and eternal satisfaction is dependent on his being ultimately and eternally satisfying. If God should ever be less than infinitely deserving of all praise and honor and credit for whatever good is achieved, our delight in him is to that extent diminished. If any degree of power derives from us, or if the praise it deserves should go to someone or something other than God, to that degree we endure irrevocable loss. Irrevocable loss. Treasure, Paul tells us. Treasure. Us. You, the gospel minister, Paul, jars of clay. If that order is ever reversed or confused in any way, this is irrevocable loss. The glory and credit and power must at all times be from God and through God and to God, anything less than this, and the glory of God that is the end of our hope is ever diminished if, if you are, are that glory. If, if I am that glory, we have no hope of glory. I have to pause here and say that again, that this is the teaching of Scripture. This doctrine is absolutely fundamental to the method of ministry at Cross Point Coast. It must be. We do not want to even suggest that there is any glory due to any name other than Jesus Christ. Let us be clear. It is not because we are afraid of God that God would be angry and smite us for robbing his glory, though he would have every right. It is because we do not want to rob you or ourselves of the glorious reality of our eternal hope, that our souls will find their rest and satisfaction only when we behold that singular glory which is in the face of Jesus Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory, for in God alone is our only hope. This is why we proceed with the method of ministry such that, that it's clear that if there's, if there's any good that takes place, if there's any transformation in any single soul, it is because of the open statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is our only hope. 
He is our glory. He is our end. The fact is, as we will see in our passage, God himself has a plan. A plan for how to conduct this ministry so that that it is his glory, his glory alone, which is on display. You've already read it with me. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. The gospel is a treasure, for in it is revealed the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the message, and the message is truly a great treasure with great transforming power. But then there's the messenger, that is, the ministry of the gospel, what verse 1 of chapter 4 speaks of, having this ministry by the mercy of of God. The ministry in the messenger is a simple, powerless jar of clay. There's nothing attractive about the ministry of the gospel, and certainly nothing attractive about the gospel minister himself or herself. Anyone who would proclaim the gospel has nothing in themselves to call attention to their power or authority. What is beautiful What is a treasure, what is great power, is the gospel itself and the God of that gospel. We're told that this is so to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the essential reality that we must see from our realization that there is a distinction between message and ministry. There is not power in the ministry, nor is there power in the messenger. The power resides in God alone. Now, what we will see in our passage this morning is that God has so arranged the nature of the gospel ministry that it will reflect this reality. God has ordained, particularly We understand the passage in its context, particularly the ministry of the apostles. God has ordained that that ministry would be clearly by the power of God, not establishing some sort of earthly conglomerate of super saints before whom all peoples must bow themselves, not even the apostles. God has no intention to share his glory in this way, but rather to put his glory on full display in the midst of the weakness of the apostles, whom he has called to make his gospel known. That is God's great, grand strategy for the revelation of his gospel, its proclamation among the people is through the weakness of the apostles and others who are his ministers. It turns out that for God to share his glory is actually to rob the gospel of hope. Our hope is to see the glory of God. Our hope is to see the full and radiant glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To hope in anything less is 
no gospel, no good news. So what a powerful blessing that we have been shown that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to any minister of the gospel, not even the apostles. Now, this is a great error that has been perpetuated in the church that we esteem gospel ministers in their own right. Many times throughout the history of the church and into the present, we esteem the gospel minister as though he had some power or authority or some treasure or glory in himself. It's one thing to give thanks to God for gospel ministry through any particular man or any particular woman, their investment in our lives as disciples of Jesus. But it's quite another thing to rejoice and and prop up and celebrate any particular ministry as though the man or the woman has anything more than a jar of clay. I remember driving to Milwaukee. I was listening to a sermon by Pastor John Piper. And, And on that drive that afternoon, I was truly overwhelmed. I was overcome by the beauty of the Jesus that Pastor John held out that day so that I actually had to pull over on the interstate in Milwaukee because my eyes were filled with tears. And I remember all I could do was cry out to God, Lord, I am filled with thanksgiving to you alone for the gifts that you have given to John Piper to hold out to me the beauty and treasure of your glory. The more you know of John Piper and his ministry at Bethlehem Baptist, you realize that it is through much pain and suffering and at times depression and something that is near to despair that God has captured his heart and seen to the proclamation of the glories of the gospel through him. But Pastor John and any minister of the gospel is just a clump of dust, just mortal flesh. But the gospel has captured him. The gospel, the glory of God has captured him. And the glory of Christ is what he proclaims. And this gospel, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this is our hope of glory. Now, if you continue with me to look at the passage, verse 8, it launches into this series of statements. We are, but not. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to a despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. One commentator, Philip Hughes, says, to be at the end of man's resources is not to be the end of God's resources. On the contrary, it is to be precisely in the position best suited to prove and benefit from God's resources and to experience the surplus of the power of God breaking through, and listen, resolving the human dilemma. Now, I and the elders and the other leaders of Cross Point Coast have experienced this very thing this week. As we made the decision to cancel the gathering at Manatee, I think we all felt the weight of that decision. 
We had a number of people tell us how they so longed to gather with the saints for the worship of God. And then quickly, in what seems like a loss of an opportunity, what seems like weakness, God has actually reminded us of the glorious and precious realities of the gospel. We have been reminded of these things. Our gathering is not to one another. Our gathering is to God, by God, for God. It is only as each of us gather to God that we can ever truly, actually be together. For we find our unity, our togetherness, our gathering is not at Manatee Elementary School, but our togetherness is at the foot of the cross. Could we see this any more clearly than if God would take our gathering place away? What do we get? We get to be reminded of God and his glory and his gospel. You know, especially at this cultural moment in which we presently live, there are many who say that what the church has to offer in our culture is community, something that is rarely found anywhere else. This is what the church truly has to offer. To truly be a successful church planter, what you need to do is you need to build a solid and satisfying community. But is this really what will resolve the human dilemma? The true community that we need is not one another. The true community that we have lost and the community that we need is to be reconciled to our God. And only the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified in my place so that I might be forgiven and reconciled to God. This is the only true resolution of our human dilemma, not human community. God, gospel, reconciliation. So to be a truly successful church planter, it turns out, is to preach the gospel that says, you don't need me. You don't need the church. You don't need community. You need Jesus. And Jesus by his grace and kindness, has given you ministers to lead you into maturity. And he has given you together a church with whom you enjoy fellowship together with God. This is what we need. We need Christ and all that is found in him. This is the deepest most compelling and satisfying community for which our hearts long, for it's found in God alone and not in ourselves, not in our efforts to reproduce community apart from God, but rather we get to see the glory of God and enjoy Him together. Now, if we continue on in the passage, there's a, a few words that are here that, that tell us something about the nature of this weakness and suffering. It says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. A few times the words always are repeated. Paul doesn't seem to be suggesting that sometimes the gospel minister will suffer, but then he'll learn his lesson and he'll move on from there. 
It was nice to get that out of the way. It seems that God has a plan for gospel ministry, and that plan is that the ministry will take place over the near perpetual presence of suffering and weakness. And this isn't by accident. It's a constant reminder of two things. First, it's a reminder to the minister and to the people that the power is in God alone. We've already covered this. We see this in the scriptures. But it is also a reminder of something else that Paul shows us here. It's a reminder of the gospel itself. That the end of the gospel is the glorious face of Jesus Christ, but the means of the gospel is the suffering sacrifice of Jesus on a Roman cross. Literally, a broken body bringing good news. This is how the messenger of the gospel may, in a representative way, put on display in our own sacrificial love for Christ's church, we can put good news on display as we give up our own bodies to bring good news. Now, to be clear, Jesus' sacrifice alone is powerfully sufficient to accomplish atonement for sin. The end, to Christ alone be the glory. But the minister of the gospel bears witness in our weakness that that sacrifice is sufficient. God's power is best displayed in the midst of such suffering. The resurrection bursts forth with such glorious light because the crucifixion seemed so final. Look at verse 11 with me. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is such a powerful, straightforward, and clear statement of resolved joy in God. The minister of the gospel gladly resolves to suffer, so that the life of Christ would burst forth as the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed and takes root in human hearts. This is the resolve of the minister of the gospel. And all of this has at its end an increase of thanksgiving. Look how the apostle gets there. He begins in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. We believe, therefore we speak. We have seen the glory of God by faith and so we speak the gospel of God's glory by faith. And it's not by our power that we have believed And so it is not by our power that we speak, but it is by faith in the power of God that we have believed in. And so we speak in expectation that the power of God would work in the midst of the ministry of the gospel to bring the glory of his grace to human hearts. And we get to be witnesses of that miracle. What is it that we believe? Verse 14 makes it clear, we believe that God is the one who raises the dead. 
This is the power of the cross. We who proclaim the gospel in the midst of our own weaknesses and suffering, we do so as a people who remember the power of Jesus' resurrection. And we expect that that power, God's power, would speak like, like one who says light in the darkness and brings about life where there was not previously life. It's the same power that is at work in the midst of our simple, sincere, open statement of the truth to bring life to darkened hearts of men and women. This is the miraculous work that God alone does in the midst of gospel proclamation. Now, look at verse 15 with me. For it is for all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may, what? Increase thanksgiving, increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is the great end, the goal of every gospel ministry. It's, it's not our ministry's growth. It's not an increase in our reach or notability. We have a tendency to believe that what the church really needs is bigger banners, bigger headlines, bigger names, bigger rooms, bigger facilities, bigger entertainment, bigger reputation, bigger events with more people gathering to it. I love the way that the artists in the group Beautiful Eulogy remind us of our faulty thinking. Here's what they say. There's a way that we can think that the culture could change if someone stepped up for the cause to rep us and our God, but who will accept the job? If only we had better rappers to gain us more respect, to validate what we believe and keep our name up in the press. But God does not use the same methods as the world. He chose the foolish and the weak to bring his message to the world. We were rescued from the world. He left us here to be his servants. We don't need more superstars. We need more gospel-centered churches working as the body to bring the gospel to the nations even when we face rejection. Jesus is our validation. The goal of every gospel ministry is not our notoriety or the perception of our success by the world, not an increase of our reputation so that we, by means of our reputation, might be more powerful and effective. The minister of the gospel is jealous for God's glory in the hearts of men and women. That if our service is a service that is given to the increase of the thanksgiving to the glory of God. What is the goal of the gospel minister? That in the heart of one who has previously not believed, that in the heart of one who rejoices in the things of this world and in pursuit of any sort of hope or community or satisfaction in the world, that that pursuit is replaced by a satisfaction in God and an increase in thanksgiving, that in the one who previously did not worship God, that one turns to the worship of God, to the glory 
of God. This is the hope and the pursuit of the minister of the gospel. And so, verse 16, we do not lose heart. You know, this is the second time that the Apostle Paul has said this in just a few verses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he told us that we do not lose heart because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. And now, he has been clear that this ministry is not only a ministry with a glorious message, it's also a ministry that play, takes place in the presence of much suffering. But the suffering of the ministry in no way diminishes the glory that awaits the one who believes. And so we do not lose heart. As he continues, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul acknowledges the reality of bodily suffering. It's real. It's not an illusion. It's not a trifle. It's not something that with enough faith we can make go away. No. But right there in the midst of suffering for the sake of gospel proclamation, God renews our faith. With each day may come new trials, but also with each day comes new renewal. Really, it's not said any better than in Lamentations chapter 3, a book of mourning, a book that reflects greatly on suffering. Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Is it not true that really 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a reflection and an application of that passage to gospel ministry? Our hope is in the Lord. He is my portion, not my reputation, not my suffering, not my weakness, not a demonstration of any strength in myself. He is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. And then verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To be honest, I don't even know what to say about that. If there is any truth at all to Paul's words here, the gospel is truly and gloriously overwhelmingly sufficient for our soul's everlasting hope. Momentary versus eternal. Light versus weighty. Affliction versus glory. Right now, in this moment, when the moment screams at us that suffering is the weight of all reality, Paul is calling us to look out. Look at what is eternal, he says. What remains, what is truly weighty, and there, there you'll see glory. 
the passage continues in verse 18, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. You see, we can only make a statement like this momentary affliction and then speak of an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can only make a statement like that if we are looking with the eyes of faith to take hold in the present of the hope that is secured by the promise of God, which we see only by the eyes of faith. Hear it again. We take hold in the present what is secured for us by the promise of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we do by faith. And so what is light, what is our affliction becomes light and momentary in consideration of the eternal weight of glory that we see in the promise and the hope of the gospel. Today, we find ourselves in a truly remarkable historic moment. It isn't even fathomable just a century ago, that a flu that originated in a city in China would jump over oceans to work its way into the borders of, I counted them, 127 countries within two to three months. Nations, including our own, have taken remarkable steps to end the spread of this pandemic. This is a moment of suffering, and this is a moment of weakness. And yet, today, this morning, I received a call from a brother, a fellow pastor in Mongolia, who called just to ask how he could pray for me and for our church. His call reminded me that we are together in Christ. And we are connected in ways never before even thought of. But it reminded me that of a few things. You know, when I was looking at this passage throughout the week, I thought the main point of this passage was comfort. That in this odd moment that we're in, we should be comforted in the midst of our suffering. But as I looked at it more, and then especially after receiving that call from my brother in Mongolia, I was challenged that this is not a word merely of comfort, but it is a call to be compelled, that we don't lose hope, and therefore we continue on in the midst of weakness. We continue on in the midst of suffering to be compelled to be ministers of this gospel. Even though we are weak, his power is strong. I'm reminded that throughout history, so many of the plagues that have spread have ravaged Europe, but they've not always made it much beyond Europe. What if the spread of the gospel today is a spread that will originate in truly unexpected places. 
What if God is going to use this moment in history to put weak and suffering people on airplanes so that his word would spread to every nation and peoples on the planet? My prayer for us as we gather today is that God would use this moment, a moment of weakness, a a moment in which we, we try to contain something as a moment in which he compels our hearts to go with the power of his glory into our households, into our neighborhoods, into our community, and into the world to embolden our church to the work of gospel ministry because we believe in the power of God to transform human hearts by the light of his grace. And because we have become jealous for his glory, because we look with faith to the face of Jesus Christ, and we want to see that face glorified among the nations and the peoples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we have glimpsed anything of your glory, it is a truly miraculous a truly gracious, merciful thing that you have done for us. And so we respond with a desire to be ministers of that great gospel. We know we are nothing. And that apart from that gospel, we are lost. But because of the glory of your grace and reconciling kindness, We have been made into a people, citing your glory and in faith emboldened to make you known that much thanksgiving would be made to the glory of God. Lord, I pray that you would show us what that means. We We don't know. We just know that your glory is great and your gospel is effective. And so we pray that you would show us in our homes today and as we gather in a variety of ways, as we communicate with one another as we pray for one another, as we pray even for the ministries that we prayed for earlier this morning, that you would make effective the ministry of your gospel in the midst of weakness to your glory. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. Even this morning, that the ministry of the gospel entering a home, perhaps a home that we're even not even expecting to hear this gospel ministry today, would hear, and not by the power of my voice, not even by the power of the internet or video, but by the power of your grace and glory, you would invade a human heart and call to faith and belief. We pray that that would be your work today. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus, that great and glorious name, in expectation of of the power of your resurrection to be at work among us today. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, there's so much that's different about our gathering, but we are about telling this story because the story hasn't changed, no matter the location of our gathering or the means of our gathering. The story of the gospel remains the same. 
And we have before us now an opportunity to remember the power of our God's gospel and his, the work of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Typically at this moment in our service, we will take communion together. We will remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper. We don't have access to doing that together in this way. So I would simply call us to remember that by faith, we would take sight of the glory of our Savior on a cross for our redemption. That by faith, we would hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11, and we would celebrate and remember the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. And that out of that, we would be called and compelled to celebrate the goodness, glory, and grace of our Savior in our song and in our mission in our communities and in our shared life together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May that be our remembering. And may that be our compulsion to celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you now as David and Sandy come to lead us in song. Let us celebrate that glorious gospel. Amen.